kind of a... I don't know if you've ever had something where it's so over the top, it's just ridiculous, like complete waste of, you know, the part of your brains, it's a complete waste of money. The other part is, this is so overabundant that it's quite funny. Um, my, my family was sort of waiting on my reaction, um, kind of like expectating of this kind of crazy, extravagant, over and abundant amount of flowers in one room and one space. Um, and all I could do was laugh, really. Um, just extraordinarily funny. Um, and it was their kind of message, their ridiculous message of we love you. That was kind of the message. We love you. We love you this much enough to get a couple of hundred flowers in one room. We love you. Um, and it's obviously stuck with me because it's a memory that sort of even to this day feels has a bit of a power to it um, that I woke up and walked out to that moment. We're in um, the middle of a spirit series. It's a potentially year-long series. <laughs> we don't know. Um, for those of you from who are new or from Hartwell, we tend to have very long series when there's topics that are very layered for us and the spirit for our community has and is a layered and um, topic. And we've all had mixed teaching. We've all had mixed experiences. We spent the first bit of our series looking at what are some of the roadblocks we have to this topic, um, what are some of the things that have maybe wounded us or um, people have abused parts of this aspect of God or abused the teaching of it. Um, and then we kind of turn to green pastures. Where do we hope to get to um, when it comes to the spirit, the experience of God individually, corporately um, and... So that's hopefully where we move to. So we'll keep that in mind as we explore today. Um, we started in Old in Old, Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible um, with Merrill, helped us start that whole journey, um, looking at images that kind of help us explore the activity of God through the people and community of God. And we're here we find ourselves in the New Testament. Um, and I would love... Um, yeah, if we stay open and curious um, to the work of God in the New Testament and the work of the Spirit flowing through that community, um, as it might affect us now. Um, so we're going to start with John today, a really interesting story in John. And I have a new friend, Tiffany, who's going to share it for us. Um, and I'm going to pop it on the screen. And I'll get Tiffany to read that for us. Hi, everyone. So the story comes from John 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now standing there was a six, was, were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of pur purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. So they took it. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and he did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. 
Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Thanks, Tiffany. It's a goodie. Um, what a story. What a story. We, um, like when we open scripture, we like to start with a thing we call um, I notice, I wonder, um, that um, we look at a text and just start with curiosity is sometimes the best place to begin. Um, so I might ask you straight off the bat at your tables to look at this scripture and come up with a few I notice, I wonder um, you might notice there's not a great deal of detail. You might notice Jesus calls her woman, woman, which <laughs> might be, that might, you might wonder why he used that word. You might wonder why so much wine to a drunk audience. There was a, the group that used the hide the building here on Friday sounded like they were full of wine at the end of the night, and they became fuller of wine late into the night. Um, and that was not a good thing. So maybe this was not a great thing that Jesus did. I, I don't know. So I'm going to get you just for a few minutes at your table, um, have a small chit-chat and explore the two questions I notice in this text and I wonder about the text. So you've got a few minutes. All right, I want to hear what you've got to say. We've got some suggestions that think Jesus might be a teenager in this, in this, this story um, with a bit of a... All right, the mic's going around. Would anyone on your table like to share some of your I notice, I wonders or I wonder? I forgot this table was a bit rambunctious. We had lots of noticings and wonderings, um, particularly whether Jesus was a teenager. Like, it sounds kind of like, oh, it's not, I'm not going to do it yet. It's not my time. Um, and his mum going over his head is interesting as well. Um, I had wondered as well if the Jewish rites of purification, if it was offensive to the culture that he would use them for, like, celebration. 
um, yeah, that was some of the wonderings that I might bring. I was just curious as to how many they were. Like, was it like a, you know, we look at a Western culture, like, yeah, it's a small wedding, but it's like, was they like the whole community, the whole town? Was it, we think, oh, everyone's drunk, or maybe just the, not everyone had wine. I'm now wandering. Ha ha ha. Um, sorry, not funny. Anyone back here? The, the first thing I notice is that in the last line, when it says, and his disciples believed in him, it doesn't qualify what that means. It could have been as a prophet, which was quite common and probably more likely. Um, sorry. Um, and then a few of us were saying, like, it doesn't mention Mary, the name, and it just says woman, and why would Jesus just say woman and not mother? Um, and she was the one who noticed the wine. Was it her friend's wedding? Jesus wasn't paying attention. Didn't really care. What's going on? Is he lazy? It's not coming out well for Jesus, this one, is it? on this table too, so I might bring some to Josh afterwards and maybe in Helen here. But um, So I'm fascinated in of the Old Testament in where he always was because there's quite a lot of um, uh, geography of where he goes. And I think in his whole lifetime or um, lifetime of teaching, I think he only actually walked for about 50 kilometers or something. I don't know the exact amount. So first off, I wonder why he's, okay, he's in Cana for um, a, a wedding, but why Cana? Uh, there's, I mean, it doesn't mean anything terribly. And the other thing with the, um, the actual stone jars for the rites of purification is interesting because um, so my son is Jewish. He converted when he got married. And um, at the wedding, we all were purified before we ate, and there were bowls full of water. So I'm wondering, is that water already been used to purify people because you do it before you eat? So it's effectively dirty water, or isn't it? I don't know. So it was just a sort of, really? <laughs> anyway, there you go. It's Josh. I just wanted to add to the um, Mother Mary stuff. I've just started a subject about Mary um, at um, Bible College. And um, what do you call it? Oh, yeah, I didn't realize how little Mary is mentioned in the Gospels. Um, and am I right in saying this is the first introduction we have of her in John? Um, and we don't even get her name. Um, and John doesn't talk about her much at all either. So, like, when I see the mother of Jesus, I project a whole lot of my idea of what Mary is onto that. But actually, this is a character we've hardly met yet. I find that really curious. When the wine gave out and the mother of Jesus said to him, you have no wine, and Jesus said to a woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not yet come. And then later on, he goes to actually convert the water into wine and performs the miracle. 
And I wonder whether when he says, my hour has not yet come, whether the, the, the red wine was a significance of his time being on the cross and shedding his blood. My hour has not yet come. I wondered, at the last line, Jesus did this and revealed his glory. And what did this show or show up or reveal about his good name, his reputation, his, his vibe? What does this story reveal about his good name and reputation? That he's willing to um, party? He's with people, community? Is it, you know, what is it about this that, celebrate story what is it about this that is revealed what a few more uh, something i just thought of what are they going to do with the water jars now that they've stained them white His mother says, I have no wine. What concern is that for you and to me? What's the connection between that and his mother then saying, do whatever he tells you? It's like he goes against her and then she goes against him. There's kind of a lot of trust for brewing in this relationship. Why six? Because it's... You know, it's usually 7, 12, 40 or one of those numbers, but why six? In the back, in the back row. I'm just wondering what um, what has given Mary this expectation that he will do, he can do something about it. What sort of miracles have been performed just in the family unit that she's witnessed and kept to herself, I guess? Any last... Last one down the front. If they'd run out of wine, how pissed was everyone? I think the line of usually at this stage you'd bring out the sort of the cheapo cask wine um, because everyone wouldn't know the difference, but um, they seem to be. Good questions. Gosh. I'd love to have answered them all for you, but I shall not be answering all those. They're just good wonderings. It's good to come with that curious, it's a really, um, like every word seems so significant in this. It's a short story. It's quite contained. Sometimes John expands things forever, but here he just, oh, there's so many gaps being left in the story. Um, and this story is only found in John. It's not found in any of the other Gospels. Much of John is unique. Sounds nice, is that 90% of his is just found in John. I, I somehow grew up thinking this was a really common story in the, in the Gospels, but this is just a John, and it happens right at the start. He's called his disciples. Um, they've met at a wedding. There's lots of thoughts of why he's at this wedding. It's about, I think, seven miles from home, so it's not a ridiculous amount of distance to get to this wedding. Um, why he's there, I don't know. Um, but John, John being the disciple that self-titled disciple that Jesus loved, um, he spent two to three years with Jesus, hanging out, getting to know him, um, being part of his inner community. Um, he was perhaps related to Jesus as a cousin. 
um, and over a lifetime has been pondering the work of Jesus. And they think this book is written quite late. So the church has had a chance to try and figure itself out. Um, And he answers a lot of different questions than the other Gospels. He seems to have a different purpose in writing and why you would put this story, this, and no one else would even take note. If they were there, why didn't they put this in? It seems like a pretty extraordinary start, and this is a pivotal moment of, oh, well, this is when we believed. Um, why is it only John who included these? So my, my questions are, are with you um, on that one. The, the other Gospels seem to touch a bit more on the kingdom of God, kind of uh, emphasising that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, He was the fulfilment of prophecy. The kingdom has come, albeit in a different way than was expected, but it has come nonetheless and introduced the resurrection into the narrative of this Messiah. Um, And so John seems to be trying to combat false teachers to prove that Jesus was in fact divine. Um, There was a lot of time where people started to go, really, did this actually happen? Um, Even now we think, oh, did this this actually, what's the deal? yeah, so we, um, what I personally want to pull out today is just some of this imagery. It's pretty rich and loaded with good symbolic imagery. And John often has stuff happens and then the meaning behind stuff happening. There's like a layer beneath, um, like an implicit and explicit stories, which often, I think growing up, I was taught, well, you don't read too much in, you know, like there's such bad sermons of, well, the pots represent the churches in Tasmania and then this is up here and, you know, like, like we can just read into it whatever we want with whatever story that we always are so cautious of it. Um, but I do like looking into the symbols. I think there's richness as we sit with this story um, and we sit with the spirit, just what the spirit up to, what's the work of God. Um, if the spirit is some of the activity of God, what's that why and what is going on here? Um, anyone here like weddings? Sure, there's lots of, I've got a bit of this going on, I've, and I've got, I've got a bit of this definitely going on. Um, it's such a divisive topic, isn't it? I think it was never intended to be such a divisive topic. Um, we have, we may all have complex family things that come up at weddings. Um, I, there's been many a years being squished on a singles table up the back at a wedding. Nothing makes you feel more isolated when Others in love are getting married and you're stuck on a single table. Um, They're complicated affairs. Sometimes they're beyond joyous. You catch the joy, the celebration. um, But what we may agree on is they're not solo affairs. They're communal affairs. Sometimes we may wish they weren't so communal. But there are a lot of people. We're centred around a common event. um, And that's sort of what we find here. Um, and the wedding imagery is is rich imagery that is all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. We um, this is not an it's interesting that this first starts at a wedding, but this imagery is so old and commonly used. Um, has anyone heard of the, the lovely term the eschatological banquet? <laughs> I was reading about it this morning in my Bible study terms. On <laughs> we all joke. Um, no, you may have indeed been doing I'm sorry, I don't mean to jest if that's in case what you were in doing this morning before your first cup of coffee. Um, it's a, this idea, eschatological, kind of refers to the end times and this banquet of the Jews looking forward to this 
banquet at the end times or the messianic banquet, a, a rich wedding feast where all were included and we celebrate our Messiah coming to save us. Um, and this was spoken about and is often found in sort of some of the Jewish writings, um, this hopeful banquet image um, that is forward in front of us. Um, and they were waiting for it, this celebration where the Messiah would come. Um, and it would be a great party that God would throw for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines of all the land, specialising this final salvation, this kind of hopeful messianic expectation. Um, we see this image in, used in relation to God and the Israelites, this kind of wedding between God and God's people, this sort of symbolic language of marriage. Um, we see it often... Um, in sort of the, if, if we think back to Hosea and um, Israel, it's just this covenant. So the word covenant is used interchangeably between God and God's people and the marriage covenant being a reflection of that. So the Jewish reader, if a Jewish reader was looking at this story um, and heard that it was a banquet, a wedding banquet, you'd think, is this the fulfilment of a messianic expectation? Or is this, is this it? Is this the event, um, which we sort of tapped on before, is like, is this, has the Messiah indeed come? And what better place to have a Messiah come than a wedding banquet of all things? Um, but it's just not, doesn't go so straightforward, this story. Um, Mary says they have no wine. Um, why she observed that, some believe that the women were kept at an area that would be closer to where the wine would be stored and would know it. Some feel that it could be Mary's cousin, and if it's a cousin's wedding, you'd be more likely to know that there's, they've run out of wine. Um, at my brother's wedding in the Kimberley, we had a caterer from Melbourne, and the caterer didn't quite understand the Kimberley appetite. Let me just say that. And the family knew it. Like, there was tension between the caterers and the family. And I still remember walking into one of the kitchens and they were secretly preparing alternate food because they didn't trust the caterers. Um, it was a bit of a drama. Anyway, so that happened to... So it can be very tense when you run out of something at a wedding. Um, so Jesus sort of... Know, she comes to Jesus knowing, saying, can you perform? Can you help? She may indeed be saying, can you and the disciples go down the street and get us some more wine? I highly doubt that. I think more in the fact that there was a knowledge of some of, like you were saying, Danielle, there's, there's a knowledge of something that would mean, how can he help? She may indeed have just said, can you fix a problem? I don't know. We don't know that. Um, and he said, my hour has not yet come. But as a good Jew who is obedient to his mother, he solves the problem at the wedding. He sort of doesn't, says, it's not my time, but I'll fix your problem. Um, and in doing so, he performs a sign and John refers to it as a sign. There's a sign that points to something that Jesus doesn't think this is the sign, but it's a sign that points towards something. Um, a few beautiful black screens. Um, but just John, what's John trying to do? John is trying to point us to Jesus, and I've, stuff has gone right over the page. Um, but even from the message, the word became flesh. This is right at the start. and moved into the neighbourhood. He saw the glory with our own eyes, one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. So John's trying to say Jesus is the one. He's the Messiah. 
And the ultimate reason that John had wrote it is that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which were not written in this book. I love when they put that at the end. There's so much more, but we just don't have enough writing space. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is a fairly well-known image of uh, Paolo Varanisi, image of the wedding banquet. Anyone, can you, any of you spot Jesus? Like a where's Wally Jesus kind of biblical form. He's pulsing. I can just imagine him pulsing and glowing in the centre. The poor guy, who's always seems to be pulsing and glowing in paintings, um, does does seem very sort of um, uh, potentially not a an early Jewish image of a wedding. But um, I, I highly doubt he was pulsing at the anyway. It seems like he's not the main. It sort of feels like he's a side character in this. Another thing is happening, and this is a side story that John is picking up as its significance. Um, and like we mentioned, it seems like a ramshackle affair of lots of drinking when this occurs. Don't ever Google wedding um, and Jesus. So, uh, I stumbled on this. <laughs> and then I realised what a wasted opportunity and how much I did not draw Jesus into my own wedding when I could have had a, had a really beautiful opportunity for such a photo. So I think I wasted my wedding photos. Um, just like, Sorry, Lord, I did not include you. Um, anyway. That for um, so the wedding, the wedding imagery, we've got this richness of um, maybe it's pointing to something of God and his people. Maybe it's just a wedding and it's a context for a story. Um, I love the idea of a messianic banquet, a banquet of all invited to the messianic banquet um, with Jesus at the helm. Um, many, I, yeah, I've walked into many a church where that does not necessarily feel the case. Um, of a banquet and celebration. Um, but maybe it's not always meant to feel like a banquet and celebration. Just, there's this beautiful verse in Isaiah. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a, rich, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of a rich food filled with marrow of well-aged wines, strain clear, big fan of well-aged wines. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that has cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people will be taken away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Again, we have this image of something in the future potentially connected to a messianic banquet. And then we see at the very end in Revelation, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let everyone who hears say, come. And let everyone who is thirsty, come. Let anyone who wishes to take the water of life as a gift. Again, we have this idea of something to be feasted upon. So Jesus almost says, mum, I'm not going to do it. Then he does. Um, And we kind of start to see this second... um, not, no, I haven't got a strong slide game today, guys. <laughs> the second image in this, in this story is wine. 
wine and wine and much wine. If you look at the floor, we have some new wine stains from the same party that we're referring to. So, yeah, it's, it's contextual. Um, there were st- six stone jars of water for the Jewish, Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water and they filled them to the brim. And he said, now draw some out, take it to the chief steward. So they took it and the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it had come from, although they they knew where the water had come from. The stewards called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. Um, So wine, is wine important in this story? Is it just... Is it significant? Has it got symbolism? Um, with wine, like, I try not to think about sort of wine from the bottle shop. Um, my father-in-law was from Crete um, and he grew up in Crete and he was talking to me about his vineyards in his house in Crete. Um, and it was a communal affair. That they're kind of, everything was around the cycle of the vines and getting the grapes and the celebrations of stamping on the grapes and the celebration around the gathering of the new wine of the season. It was very communal, very much connected to the land producing the goods of the earth um, rather than the bottle up the shop. Um, but I think of kind of Spiros when I think of this wine. This is wine that has been produced on vines, similar to maybe what is there in Crete now. Um, Wine is also featured through scripture. We see it often um, throughout various points. Um, it's often numbered amongst the gifts of God, who, the creator who gives humanity gifts from creation. Like he is the capacity for something that can bring joy and celebration. It's a blessing from the gift of creation, we said in Psalm. Wine helps redeem God, God's curse on the soil after the sin of Abraham. Wine, oil and corn are themes the prophets used in speaking of Israel's restoration. So wine seems to have layers. The abundance of wine is also connected to that. So it's not a new idea, this, uh, this concept of the abundance of wine, um, connected to joy and celebration. And it's also seen as a sign of the Messianic age. So it's quite... There's, this story sits in somewhere in the scriptures, but it, it points back and it's seeming to point forward as well. Um, with a little sort of, oh, but anyway, no, I won't tell you about that. <laughs> why, why six jars instead of seven or eight? I'll, I'll, I'll tell, I, haven't, I haven't got enough time today. There's an interesting, so look, look at me go. There's an interesting side story. And I haven't got time. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> um, there's an interesting side story. It's not, all of this is just people's thoughts, but there was another, the sort of, um, the pagan god of the time was Dionysus, um, the god of wine. And there was a ceremony um, that was known in the sort of Dionysian cult um, where there would be a sealed room and jars put inside. Three, traditionally three jars would be put inside. The doors are sealed, unseal the doors. Lo and behold, the three jars are full of wine worship Dionysus, kind of, you know, extraordinary, wow. And then we have more writings that have emerged about all the pipes that go, like the cheetah's pipes that fill up the wines um, and it became known that the Dionysian cult were cheating on their, their wine filling. And whether the three, the traditional three wines, Paul, uh, John was just saying, I'm going to go for, you know, six, my God is better than your God. That's not a... <laughs> 
It's, that's a debatable interpretation of why three or six. Um, but anyway, there's a demonstration that indeed it was not a cheating version of this sort of amazing situation. Um, we, we can't acknowledge that wine is problematic as an image. Um, where, as a Church of Christ, we were part of the temperance movement um, where this wine was seen as a, a concern and it, we would not be drinking wine in our midst. I was at a conference the other day and they were talking about a church in Mildura um, when the minister found out that one of his congregants had been selling wines to the local, or like grapes and to the local winery. They were excommunicated from the church. Um, <laughs> so serious business. So, and wine sits in our world in a complicated way. Um, we probably all know that. It's not, uh, an abundance of wine is not always seen as a good thing. Um, with, um, yeah, our tradition knows that, our community knows that. Um, I'll just put that, that's just a little side note that this is me not promoting abundance of wine in our midst um, to celebrate the Messianic banquet. That's not my, my end line for this. Um, yeah, what I think is important is John doesn't focus on the wine so much. He sort of really moves on really quickly onto this was a sign. I don't know what happened once the wine had come out. Um, but he doesn't focus on it. The Old and New Testaments are well aware of the dangers of drinking wine, and it considers it a gift of God despite humanity's tendency to misuse it. So we sort of, it it, as a symbol, there's something in it that perhaps it's a sign of the Messianic banquet to come, and perhaps there's concerns, and in other places a lot of warnings about it. So what what is the story in John about? Is it about a banquet? Is it about a wedding? Is it about wine? Um, Is it about abundance of wine for glory? Um, The joy of exploring it. For Richard Raw, one of our favourites around here, the the wedding feast of Cana is clearly about abundance. It seems that 120 to 180 gallons works out to be 463 to 681 litres which is possibly more that one could consume on one single day of a seven-day wedding feast. And it's about 900 bottles of wine. Okay, so just imagine if a, a wedding you've been to, 11.30 at night, out come 900 bottles of wine. I don't, I don't know how big the wedding was. I don't know if it's a 10-person affair and that means, or a hundred, you know, like a, an Indian wedding with hundreds of people, everyone is gathered. I don't know the context. But for Richard War, it's about abundance. Um, that he links this to the abundance in the loaves and the fishes, which comes later in John's story, that there's a, a lack and a provision and then a more than enough provision. Um, even in the desert, manna in the desert for the Israelites, a lack, a provision and a more than enough provision. Um, and the message is that there is no lack at this banquet table. No lack of love or no lack of grace. With Jesus, we're introduced to a new economy an economy of grace that is, over, that is overflowing in love. Because there is that cheeky moment we see in here that Jesus didn't find another wine bottle. He chose the purification jars. Um, and really interesting to hear of how that worked, Daphne, you know, how they're used at a, at a wedding right at the start. So they're, they're, not, um, they're not traditionally something you would fill with wine. It seemed to be part of a quite a, a systematic sort of ritual of purification um, and there's a glimmer of that, of um, this is not about purification. There's something else going on. So maybe that's 
the heart of what John is putting, pointing to, I don't know. Um, I've only had a few moments in my world, in my life, of um, abundance, where, the, where abundance has resonated in my being. Moments where I've experienced unconditionality, unmeritedness, or the profundity of unearned love. I don't know if you've encountered a moment where you've felt in your bones unearned love of the divine. This is not stingy love, but something carried out within the enoughness of the divine and my enoughness in return. So perhaps one of the roles of the Spirit is to bring this truth to our mind and heart in moments where it matters most, that we're not part of the economics of merit, of earning things, of cleansing, of the right and wrong, of how to do community, but there's something of the abundance of love in this economics. Maybe the story carries the message of just the abundance of a table, that the banquet is indeed an open invitation to all. Um, I kind of cautiously talk about the abundance of love and the sort of open invitation. Just church can be a little bit love-heavy. I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like we're, praise God, you're so loved. You are loved. You're loved as well. Just praise Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Like I think like... (laughs) Is anyone having sort of a, sort of a, a triggered moment? Um, we were at a conference the other. I was at this conference, and someone we were talking about um, what's ministers when they're going through burnout. What do they need? And someone, and the guy had asked the community, and someone behind us said they just need Jesus. And he's like, oh. And someone else said they just need to take it to the Lord. And the guy's like, eh, it wasn't where I was going with it. And he goes, I was, I was thinking like therapy, counselling. And then behind me, in under her breath, then she goes, and then take it to Jesus. Like she, she couldn't, she, just, she whispered it to herself. I was like, oh, I get, I get a little bit allergic to when sometimes this message is saccharine or just treated flippantly. We say it so often that it loses its power. Um, or that we enforce celebration and that we are all to be part of this messianic party. If you're feeling a bit down today, I don't care. You've got to join us in, in this up moment I think some of my loneliest moments might have been in, in the audience at a Hillsong conference at some point, you know, that you can feel remarkably lonely in the middle of other people celebrating. But maybe just in, just goes back to Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. This is not the banquet. He goes on to have a whole life. The banquet, the hour seems to be his sacrifice at the end, the cross and the resurrection. Um, so a wedding banquet and celebration and more than enough wine is a symbol, is a image, but it's not our only image as Christians. We hold it with many others. Um, and these other images hold, can hold pain and hold despair and hold joy and hold triumph that this abundant wine and wedding are part of a bigger story. So I'm just, I'm just going to finish um, where we started with this, this image of a daffodil. Um, so this, this birthday morning, it had probably been the most hellish year of my family. I was in the middle of a mental health crisis and I was being a right old little to my family, um, just children in the room, um, but I was being pretty feral. It wasn't a pleasant place to be. My family had issues. There were issues everywhere. Um, and that's what kind of made this comical amount of flowers just a bit more pointed in again, um, I was being saturated in love in a way that my family could show me. 
Um, just so you know, here's a taste of how much we love you. Um, so I guess for me that just helps remind me there are moments where I taste of the abundance of God. Um, and they're not every day and they're not just what we focus on at church, um, but they're significant nonetheless. Um, and maybe the Spirit, one of the roles of the Spirit is to remind us of this abundance an abundance that reaches within, within us and reminds us of our belovedness. Maybe that's one of the roles. And this may come in a variety of creative ways, probably not me telling you 50 times, but probably in nature, in a family gesture, in something, you'll be reminded of the abundant love of God. Maybe one of the roles of the spirits is to remind us of the banquet, an invitation so audacious that it riles the ego that craves rules, boundaries, control, and conditions upon entry. I've definitely been to churches like that. <laughs> um, but this invitation to an open banquet is audacious and it makes people very uncomfortable. And lastly, maybe the Spirit draws us beyond the I am loved message to the we are loved, which is really reassuring that it's not just reliant on me, to the finally all things are interconnected within love. And that seems to be the good news that maybe warrants a celebration. We're going to come together um, in communion. Um, again, we've got, it's not wine, I have to tell you, we're not, we're not the Anglicans. Um, but we've got grape juice because of our lovely Churches of Christ tradition. We're going to come together and taste. Again, in this, in this story, we get a sense of the taste of abundant love and a taste of the full inclusion at the banquet of God. And again, we, we taste these moments. They aren't our permanent state. But let's um, come together and maybe taste that day. Everyone is welcome. There's no, you know, ins and outs. You can't if. Um, so what we do is we come up, grab a, a little um, cup of grape juice, crack the, knuckle, crack the cracker with your knuckle, um, hold the elements and we come into a big circle if you decide not to, that's okay. If you decide you're a tiny bit hungry and this may just satiate you for one minute more, um, that's okay as well. That's okay. So let's come up to the table. May you remind us of abundance, an abundance that reaches within us and points to our belovedness. May you open our eyes and hearts to this. May you remind us of the audacity of the open banquet and the invitation that is not based on merit. May you draw us beyond being loved to knowing that we are all the beloved and that all things are interconnected within the ever-extending landscape that is your love. Amen. Let's eat and drink together.